Episode 1. Fourth Estate presents Cook's Chronicles, a podcast from me, Nigel Slater. In this series, you'll be joining me on the story of my life in the kitchen, from the first jam tart I made with my mother, standing on a chair trying to reach the aga, through to what I'm cooking now. In our first episode, we'll talk exclusively to my lifelong editor, Louise Haynes, about my writing from the days we first started working together to now. Hello, uh, I'm Louise Haynes, and I'm uh, the publisher and editor at Fourth Estate of Nigel Slater's new book, A Cook's Book. And Nigel and I have worked together for um, a few years now <laughs> uh, on all his books, whether they're cookbooks or his memoir, Toast, or other narrative books like Eating for England. And we first met uh, after I wrote to Nigel and asked him if he'd ever thought of writing a cookbook. At the time, Nigel was writing in Marie Claire magazine, and I'd found myself waiting each month for his column and then cutting cutting it out to cook from and I should stress that this was in the days just before the internet and I had the idea as a publisher that maybe quite a few other people might be doing the same as me and it later turned out that indeed uh, there were and the recipes seemed super easy uh, totally new and fresh a very informal way of writing lots of amazing ideas and variations on ideas uh, and then Nigel replied, and he took a little persuading to do a book, um, but it was, on my part anyway, instant liking and rapport when we met. And I have to say that it was uh, when he sent me later on the first chapters for this first book, Real Fast Food, that I discovered uh, to my absolute joy that that Nigel also wrote like an angel it was amazing and today Nigel's one of the most loved cooks in the country and the most respected and I think this year he went to collect his OBE for his services to literature and he's now also written what I consider to be one of his most beautifully written considered useful and beautiful books a cook's book so Nigel's here with me today to chat about it and answer a few questions about his cooking. So hello. <laughs> hello, what a <laughs> fabulous introduction. Thank you. Um, can you tell us why you decided to write this book now and when you were thinking about it, which I think was during sort of lockdown, wasn't it, the first lockdown? It was the beginning of of the first lockdown and the pandemic. I just felt that there was a mood in the air that we were very unsure of what was ahead of us, what was going to happen. And I know that I was looking for some sort of reassurance. I wanted something familiar, something that I could be sure of, because what was happening in the world seemed so unpredictable. And so a collection of recipes that I knew were my favourite, that worked time and time again. Recipes that had really just become part of my life. I thought it would be useful to have a collection of all of those recipes um, in one place, rather than having to sort to sort through. So it was just, I think, to capture the 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 mood of the t uh, of the moments that 
idea that um, everything was going to be all right. You'd got, you know, something, something safe and sound. Yeah, I think I think that comes through in sections like the baking section. Obviously, everyone was baking then, um, and there's something so reassuring about that that you could cook and have a something wonderful to eat at the end of the day. And at least you had that. I mean, you love the idea that no matter what happens, you can bake a loaf. There's something so basic about it, so humble about putting a loaf on the table. Um, as I found when I tried to buy flour, and the shelves were, you know, um, completely, uh, completely stripped of bags of, of baking flour. But there is something about uh, about baking. But I think probably because you don't really do it for yourself. You bake a cake or a loaf for other people. It's something you share. And in a way, that felt very right for the moment. Um, I think we all needed somebody to say, you know, I love you and I care about you. And that's a, a way to do it, is to bake a cake or, 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 or a loaf of bread. Oh, that's such a lovely idea. Um, in the introduction to the book, you have a delightful section on your kitchen's past and present uh, and what equipment you like to, to use. And you mention some highly sustainable solutions, like uh, you have a rule about plastic and no plastic, and you like to invest, if you can, in, in pans that will last a lifetime. And can you tell us a bit more about how you choose your equipment and and also the ceramics that are in the photos and I mean certainly I like things as to be aesthetically pleasing um, so I'm not going to buy a sort of purple plastic washing up brush um, but with cooking equipment I particularly look for things that are heavy and and well made because I know that they're probably going to be with me for quite some time when I bought my set of saucepans, and I only really have three or four pans um, of the traditional sort of deep, deep um, type that we use every day. When I bought them, I remember thinking, this is the most expensive purchase I've ever made. And at the time, I was quite nervous about spending that, that much money. That was, oh, I don't know, over 30 years ago. And they're still with me today. They're used every single day. So I like purchases that um, that are quite sound, where I'm not being tempted because something's fashionable or I've seen it on the television or something. I want a pan that will be timeless. And very often they are the heavy ones. They're the quite expensive ones. Unless, of course, it's a wok. And the cheaper the wok, the better, in my opinion. Um, because they will get really, really hot very quickly, which is what you need when you're stir-frying. Um, expensive woks take forever to heat up, and they don't, they don't really work. Um, so it's got to be something that is comfortable in the hand. So if it's a knife, for instance, uh, it, needs to, it needs to have a good balance to it. It doesn't matter whether it's as cheap as chips or it's an expensive knife. It's just got to work. And sometimes, yes, I've made mistakes. But generally, I will look for something that is, uh, above all, well-made, heavy, uh, and that will be with me for a long time. I don't like things that um, have a sort of built-in obsolescence. 
So something that, you know, those very thin pans that buckle or bend when you put, mm. them, you put them on the heat. They're a false economy because although they're very cheap, you're going to have to replace them. So if, you know, where I can, I will always pay a little bit more for something uh, and buy it from a traditional shop. So, yeah, like a baking tin that sort of you put in the oven, you can hear it almost sort of buckling. Yeah. My, my baking sheet is cast iron and it is heavy. It's been with me for quite a while and it is exactly the same as the day I bought it. There's not a bend in it. Whereas previously, I have used cheaper ones. And yes, they just buckle straight away. You can hear them. And, and also things, um, things burn mm. if it's not a good flat base. So yes, false economy. Well, that sort of brings us into gadgets. Do you think any gadgets are, are worthwhile? <laughs> well... I'm not fond of opening a drawer and finding it full of things you use once a year. I always say that if, if it takes me longer to find something than it does to use it, then I don't need it. Those drawers full of little bits and pieces that you bought from a catalogue that you thought would be a good idea. No, I think you should just tip it up in the recycling, you know. Um, there are very few gadgets that I, that I use. Some things are genuinely useful. Um, something that will stone cherries or olives. They're actually quite... I love that. They, are quite really that they are quite useful because it's a, it's a difficult job otherwise. And if you're stoning cherries without a cherry stoner, you're going to get purple, purple nails and purple mm. hands. But most of the, of the things in my sort of top drawer, as it, as it were, um, are very heavily edited. So if something isn't really working then it's out. I really don't want clutter because I don't like clutter. I find it quite uncomfortable and quite unnerving to have lots of bits and pieces that I don't, I don't really use. That said, I've got um, a couple of fancy cake tins that only come out a couple of times a year because they make my cakes look, look great. They turn the cake into a, into a celebration. I have got a muslin jelly bag that I use for when I make, um, you know, damson jelly or when I make blackcurrant jelly, which of course is only once a year. But other than that, it has to prove its worth in the kitchen. And that means a regular, a regular use. Oh, that is good advice. So we, you, you've mentioned no cluster and we get in the book, we get to peek at your quite minimalist kitchen in the book photos. So can I just ask, you're not secretly a messy cook? <laughs> I have my moments. Um, no, I'm quite a tidy and neat cook. That comes from my very early kitchens, which were tiny. So there was probably only a, a space of a couple of feet in between the cooker and, and, and the wall. Um, and I had to keep tidy. I had to put something away after I'd used it. If something was um, was dirty, had to go in the sink straight away. I couldn't have a mess because otherwise I'd have no room to cook. And that has sort of stayed with me. So I am quite a tidy cook. You could catch me on a day when I'm doing a lot of food for photography and you might walk in at the end of the day and think, that looks a bit of a mess. But that's because I've got to, I've got to get a lot of work done by the end of the day. I like being tidy and I don't like clutter and mess so 
I also think that I can actually cook better when the kitchen's tidy. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not good being surrounded by, by untidiness and mess. It it, it unnerves me, um, and I think my cooking is uh, is better when I've got a nice clear counter and I can see what's what. So is that one of the biggest time savers that cookbooks don't normally mention? And I'm sort of speaking as someone who will go and spend 10 minutes trying to find a, a, some cumin seeds at the back of a, that I thought I had at the back of a, uh, of a cupboard. Do you not keep them in alphabetical order? No. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> I've learned that there are... So if you take the olive oil out of the cupboard and you pour some into the frying pan, if you immediately put the lid on, uh, the cap back on, and you put it back on the shelf, that's job done. If you just pour the olive oil out and then put the bottle on the counter, it means later you've got to find the cap, you've got to put it back on the bottle, you've then got to put the bottle in the cupboard. So why not do it all at once? And it, to me, it's part of the economy of, 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 of movement. It just makes everything quicker and simpler if you clear up as you go along. And that does include putting things back as soon as you've used them. So as soon as you've used the coriander seeds or something, put them straight back in the cupboard. Don't stick them on the counter to, to sort out later. Once you get used to it... Oh, I'll try that. I made works. your... Um, it's the sweet potato and lentil pie last mm. night, which... I mean, I think I'm going to be making it every week this this winter. It was absolutely su- superb. I didn't have any curry leaves. That was the only thing. But um, I think the most sort of time-consuming bit was, you know, there's a few spices that you put in it. And it was, for me, is is sort of going and sorting in my very untidy cupboard at the back. Um, and I obviously need to get better and spend bank holidays sort of sorting them out. There are better things to do on a bank holiday than tidy your cupboards. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, one one of the first reviews of a cook's book uh, by the food writer, Diana Henry, has said, this is a book for life. And I couldn't agree more. There's such a good balance of all the dishes that you need through the year, whatever the season. Uh, there's a blend of the quick and everyday, and there's some feasts. There's things like four chocolate cakes, four special occasion cakes, uh, seven pasta dishes, and you've got deeply comforting foods, savoury foods. Uh, and then there's a couple of wonderful sections, like uh, sometimes you just want pie. How on earth did you get it to be such a perfect balance? And how did you whittle down the recipe? Well, there's a lot of recipes. I don't know how many I've published, to be honest, but it is in the thousands. And whittling down the recipes was was part um, good fun, you know, discovering recipes that I might have forgotten about, things I haven't made for a, for a while. But it was also quite frustrating. If you think of the cheesecake chapter, I've probably done, I don't know, eight or nine cheesecakes over the years. And I knew there wasn't room for them all in the book. And deciding which ones would go in, it was a bit frustrating because I wanted them all to be in there. So I had to be, I mean, some were very easy. Perhaps there is an ingredient that isn't always in season or it's a recipe that I felt could be could be better. I know one of the cheesecakes is too rich. Um, so some of the decisions were, were quite easy. But when I've 
you know, when I've gone through through recipes or through all my books, through stuff that's online, through all my files, such as they are, I mean, they're quite untidy. Um, I was coming across recipes that I'd think, oh, that's got to be in there. That's really, really important that that recipe's in there. Um, but then that meant something else had to go. And it was quite um, a frustrating task, was whittling it down to, I don't know how many recipes there are in there, but a couple of hundred recipes, mm-hmm. from 30 years of writing. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it was it was very obvious. There are certain dishes that have become part of my life. And I make them over and over again. All their dishes that other people have told me they make regularly that I felt had to be in there. So that was the easy part. The difficult part is choosing, you know, which chocolate chip um, cookie you want to put in when you've... (laughs) And you've got about four recipes for them, you know. Yeah, well, that brings me on because they're, the recipes are they're very classic. And on the other day, they're all bang up to date. So you'll have in the essential section, there'll be sort of mayonnaise. Uh, and that will be next to a miso sort of marinade uh, in the essentials chapter. Um, and so how do you make them? effortlessly sort of modern at the same time you're you're always playing around with them yes i mean there are recipes that are absolute classics and there is pretty much no point in 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 changing them um but there are recipes that you know i like to move on a little bit you see there are some cookery writers who feel that a recipe that was written 40 or 50 years ago is perfect. Don't change it. I admit there's a few of those. But generally speaking, cooking moves on. It goes forward. We get new ideas. We get new inspirations. Also, the way we eat changes. But I quite like classic cooking. So most of my recipes are... A classic approach. It's a new approach to a classic. So it's something that I have enjoyed. It's a recipe I respect and I like. But I want to freshen it up. I want to do something a little bit interesting with it. I'm not the sort of person to completely reinvent something. You know, you you don't um, you don't buy an Argus later book for something weird and wonderful. And I do believe that there are things that belong together on the plate. There are ingredients that are very comfortable together. They're good friends. They're old friends. And whatever you do with them, they will always work. But they can always make new friends as well. So you can bring in changes, bring in new ideas. But classics with a twist, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with those. There's something, there's something quite life-affirming about taking a recipe that you know and refreshing it. Mm. And you think, yes, I loved it as it was, but I like it in its, in its new clothes. What was a new ingredient that you're currently playing with and That's trying? Right. Or changing a recipe um, because, for instance, it may have had whipped cream in it. And you think, well, actually, I don't know that I want to eat that much cream. So you bring in something like ricotta or you bring in a bit of kefir or something that is that is lighter and, and, and fresher, maybe something that's not so sweet. Um, there are some of the recipes that I've taken some of the sugar out of a little mm-hmm. bit. Um and and I really enjoy that. I love the way cooking doesn't stand still. Hmm. 
And um, with, because uh, I remember once in in one of in Appetite, yeah. you had a list of uh, ingredients that go together a bit like a carton horse or whatever, but cabbage and bacon and and those sorts of things. But how do you acquire that sense of what goes with what? When I wrote that chapter about what goes with what, I had no idea what was going to happen to that chapter. It has ended up, I cannot tell you how many people have said to me that they read that at their wedding. What goes with what? That, that things are just made for one another. That they're right. And every time somebody says, oh, we read that at, at, we read that out at my wedding, it gives me such a thrill when they say it. It makes me so happy because I never thought about it. I just know that, you know, cheese works with tomatoes or chips works with a fried egg. There are certain ingredients that were meant to be. And I love it that it's been, it, it, it's been taken up for a, you know, completely different... different yeah, it's, a, a, it's got a different life. Um, and it happens all the time. Some people ask, is it all right if we, if we use it? Uh, and other people just, yeah, just stop me in the street and, and, and tell me about that chapter. We all know those ingredients that um, that are comfy together, that are happily you know, happily share a plate, and they are classics. So I would never say that I, I you know, I've reinvented them. I, I've invented them. Um, it's just that they they do. You know, Parma ham works with melon because salty things work with refreshing things, and that's that's how that that's how that works. Um, there are so many things that uh, ingredients that have become absolute classics put together on on the same plate, and I don't think you can argue with them really. You know, if you take chocolate and hazelnuts, I mean, it's heavenly together, or chocolate yeah. and almonds. Um, they work. Let's yeah, not. Time. Let's not. Yeah, let's not mess around with it. You know, pairing ice cream, isn't it? When you go in and think, oh, I'll have pistachio with. Oh, isn't that such a joy? I did it the other day. I went into an ice cream shop and I knew that I got to have two flavours because that's how it works. And the the utter joy of working out what ice cream would go yeah. would go with what. Um, yes, I had a I had a ginger cake ice cream and a coffee ice cream, and they were beautiful together. Well, that's really, I, well, I can spend too long sort of trying to work work that out. No, it's an important decision. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the people behind me think that. Um, so in, in youth, I wanted to ask about potatoes because um, there's a Nora Ephron quote uh, on potatoes where she says there's nothing like mashed potatoes when you're feeling blue. Nothing like getting into bed with a bowl of hot mashed potatoes already loaded with butter and methodically adding a thin, cold slice of butter to every forkful. And I think that your books, they've had just so many amazing potato recipes. Um, I'm also particularly thinking of real food. Uh, and in this, this book, you've got uh, a mash of roast garlic, lemon and parmesan, or a potato ke- cake with fontina, obviously roast potatoes. Um, but why do cookbooks... Is it just my imagination, but they don't have as many potato recipes anymore? Did potatoes go out of fashion or 
Well, I'm with Nora on potatoes. Um, I absolutely love them. And yes, I do think that they are, that they're not featured as, as, as heavily as they used to be in recipes. They'll always be in my books. There's certainly, I haven't a single book that doesn't have a, a huge chapter on potatoes. And this one, I really had to work on getting it down because when I started, it was almost a, an entire book because I love them in all their, in all their guises. Um, I guess there is an idea that the potato isn't, isn't healthy. You know, people think of it as being pure carbs. But I think of it as just being a taste of heaven. It doesn't matter whether you fry it or whether you steam it, uh, whether you cut it into, into chips. It doesn't matter what you do. A potato's wonderful. And it's particularly wonderful when it meets fat. So when you mix that butter into the hot mashed potato, when you put the chips into the oil or the sauté potatoes into the butter, there is this marriage of starchy potato and fat that is just made in heaven. I completely love it. And it will always be in my books. And if somebody said, Nigel, you're dying tomorrow, what do you want to eat? I want chips and I want some Bernays sauce and I will sit there and stick those, dip those chips one after the other very slowly into that Bernays sauce. And that to me is, is, is the best meal of the lot. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, it brings us on to comfort. But do you consciously try and make your books comforting? Because everyone in, in the office thinks that this book I think someone said it's just pure balm for the soul but how how do you do it do you is it's just what you're drawn to that the foods like potatoes or is comfort from food something at the end of the day that when you've had a bad day and something's gone wrong or whatever you can sit down and have something and food in, in many ways, it solves everything. You know, when something is in front of you in a bowl, steaming away, or it's on a plate, your world kind of stops. All of the things that are hassling you, all of the things that are on your mind, all of the jobs you know you need to do, they all just dissolve when you've got some food in front of you. And yes, it's about comfort, but it's also about doing something that is for you and it's for others so making somebody something to eat I think is a wonderful way of saying I care about you making something for yourself to eat I feel is a sign of self-respect and I will always make myself something to eat every day it doesn't matter how quick it is I will always make myself something to eat and that translates yes into comfort. Um, so most of my, many of my recipes are about making yourself and others feel good. So, no, I don't stint on ingredients. Um, yes, my recipes are, are probably quite different now to they were 20 years ago. Um, they're probably not quite so comforting, but it's still a major part of why I put a recipe on, you know, in a book, is to make to make everybody feel good. Mm. And that brings me on to, I wanted to ask you, because I think we're in the middle of some 
eating revolution and there's obviously a huge shift going on as we eat more vegetables for the planet and for health as well mm. um, and there's a very big vegetable section in this book but then I would say as well that when we worked on Real Fast Food the, your first book there also was a huge vegetable section in that uh you've the meat section in this book is 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 much more centered on um special occasions and and a feast isn't it so it's not something that you're going to do every every day uh but i i wondered how you've changed your diet whether it's been sort of conscious gradual or just sort of overnight if you when um, when I was writing Green Feast, um, that was very much of the moment. It was I knew that I was eating less meat. Um, when I did eat meat, it was always a treat, and so I, you know, I, I put together a series of recipes that I just felt that's how I'm eating at the moment, which is much more vegetables, uh, more pulses, lots more beans. Um, and and less less meat, and with this book, I wanted the meat recipes to be a celebration. I wanted them to be something that we didn't do very often, but when we did them, we really went for it. So it became a feast. So yes, there are a lot of vegetable and vegetarian recipes. There's quite a few vegan recipes in there because that's how I eat, and. You know, at the end of the day, this book, it's written for other people, but it's its how I eat. It's based on my, my everyday eating. So when I'm now thinking that I do want to eat meat, it will be, I wouldn't say rarely, but it will certainly only be once a week, maybe, maybe twice a week. And it's a celebration. So, yes, the meat chapters are, are very much about, about feasting, about the sort of thing you cook when you have... Um, a special occasion or, or friends over or something like that. There is a huge bulk of, of, of recipes, as there have been in, in my previous books, um, for, for vegetarian eating. It's how I eat. It's how I think a lot of other people are eating right now. And if I look at how my cooking has changed, it definitely has become greener, uh, and also, I'm you know I've embraced all of the grains. I mean, things like you know magrabia and couscous and uh, and quinoa and all the what I call the sort of beige things in jars on the on the shelf. And those things are so much fun you can have with that. Um, and I've embraced it in this um, book. What yeah. in, what ingredients do you perhaps think that we don't make the most of in in the UK? Definitely. Um, definitely beans. The majority of beans we eat in this country are, of course, in tomato sauce in a can. And what we have not explored as much as we could have done are all the cannellini beans, the black-eyed peas, those wonderful beefy butter beans. I probably eat... I would say I don't know ten times more beans now than I than I used to even five years ago. They've become such an important part of my diet, and I do believe we don't use them as much as we as we did. One because many of them do need soaking overnight, and even I'm guilty of completely forgetting to 
put them into soak. Um, and the other thing is that then they're not really part of our of our culture. We don't grow them here, so they're not really really part of our sort of culinary DNA. Um, unless, as I say, they come in a tin in in, in tomato sauce. The the idea that you can now buy cans, you can buy jars of beans that are they're, they're cooked, they're ready for you to you know they're ready for you to use, and we, as I say, traditionally we probably haven't made as much of of, of those as we as we should have done. I mean, we embrace pasta, <laughs> so you know I think next step is beans. I always remember your description of eating spaghetti in toast as a child. That was well, it was it was a very exciting thing because I was brought up on meat and two veg. It wasn't a meal unless there was meat on the plate, some potatoes and some greens. And we decided to be very ahead of our time and have spaghetti bolognese. And it was, it was, it was really quite an experience, actually. It was, it was extraordinary. Yes, and that description <laughs> of your father in the Parmesan. Yes. <laughs> um, so can I, I mean, can you gaze into your crystal ball now and how do you think eating will continue to change over the next, say, five years? Do you, will we just continue the journey to more veg? Absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, we have a long history of, of vegetarian eating in, in, in this country, but I think it is now so mainstream. And I have so many friends who don't eat meat at all now. And I really do think that is probably the way we're going, is less and less meat and fish, more vegetarian and vegan eating. But when we do eat meat, it will be an absolute celebration and it will be it will be saved for those for those days. And we will eat it in smaller quantities. So you know, there's great big mounds of of um of pies and puddings, no, I, I think those will will disappear. We are, yeah, we're we're, we're moving slowly but surely um, towards a, a very very green way of, uh, of well, eating that's ourselves. Good news, and it is it is a gradual thing because it you, you it takes a while to to work out how to do it five days a week, doesn't it? When Ooh. you were brought uh, when when some of us were brought up and you you know you had a sausage for in the evening it doesn't doesn't happen overnight no sure so i wanted to move on because when when um we were putting the book together and uh we were running a little bit late uh on <laughs> on the schedule yeah, that's, that's and uh, as as usual i was panicking a little bit <laughs> and i was i was thinking to myself yeah how, how can we speed it speed it up and uh, and I know a little bit how you work, but I wanted you to talk about it because I thought to myself, you're spending time going shopping for all the photographs mm -hmm. and I can come and help. I'll go and do the shopping and you can go and sit and write, write, write the book. But actually, um, it's all very much part of the process of of doing the book and writing the book. And I wondered if you could... It To me, it seems to make the book so much more intimate and personal to you. And I think 
uh, maybe we don't understand enough about uh, how the photography is done. And so I just wanted you to talk a bit about this. And you did actually train as a food stylist doing photography. Um, I was delivering, I was working in a cafe and I had to deliver some of the cafe's food to a photographer for him to photograph. And when I went to leave, he said, why are you leaving? Somebody's got to style his food on on the plates. Um, And that's how it started. But the truth is that I prepare food for photography exactly as I prepare it to eat. So although many cookbooks are done by food stylists um, with all their tweezers and cotton buds and I don't know whatever else they use, I just cook every recipe as I would if I was going to sit down and eat it. And then I put it on plates. I don't style it. I just put it carefully on the plate exactly as I would if I was serving it to friends and then we photograph it and then every single time we sit down and eat it and we photograph quite quickly partly because I want it to look great and I want it to look freshly cooked but also because I don't want it to be cold when we sit down and 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 eat it I can't see why there should be any difference between food you cook for a photograph and food you you cook for your family so with me, it's all, you know, it's it's very much as I would, as I would cook cook normally. It's not a it's not a special thing, food styling. And although I love choosing the right plate for the right food, I don't agonise over it. I mean, sometimes I look at food photographs and I think somebody has really, really thought this through a little bit too much. They've everything's very matchy matchy and. It, it kind of looks contrived. It doesn't look real. Whereas I do, you know, enjoy going to the cupboard and getting out the right plate and thinking, yeah, that would look really good with this. But I don't think about it too much. I don't overthink it. And sometimes it works and sometimes it, it doesn't and you have to rethink it. Most of my um, plates and bowls and things are ones that I use every day in the house. I don't keep a a special supply of things for photography. Neither do I shop differently for for photography. Uh, It's it's part and parcel of of what I do. Um, But I still love it. It's it's something I've I've always enjoyed, making something look good on a plate. Um, uh, It goes back, I think, to when I was a... Because I was a waiter in the days when waiters used to used to actually put the food on the plates in front of the in front of the diner silver service i think it was called um and i used to love laying things out beautifully um, and i still do to this day um it's just part of what i do really i think it's it's quite a skill though making it always look good and not putting too much on a on a plate so it doesn't fill it out too much there there must be lots of rules like like that that you just that's what you you don't do whereas someone else you know would would perhaps i would put too much on and i do look at some food photography and it almost looks like it's on the edge of a nervous breakdown it's been so tweaked and played with it's so tightly styled and i know that this parsley leaf has been put there for 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 show and all the rest of it Uh, and i just hate it i just don't want to eat it Um, a lot of instagram food is like that it's it's fiddled around with too much um i don't know whether it's it's something that you can 
you can probably train to do, I guess. But with me, um, it, it just feels right. It just feels a natural thing thing to do is making something look nice on a plate. So when I cut a slice of, of cake or pie, I don't want a piece that's too big. I don't like plates that are piled up with food. Um, you can't see what you're eating and everything's a mess and also it looks like a bit of a dog's dinner. So I will always put less rather than more on a plate. Because uh, you can always go back and help yourself to, to a second portion. No, absolutely. But are, are there some dishes that are quite hard to shoot? So is soup, for instance, quite difficult to make it? I mean, soup is soup. It's... Well, you learn to... Um, you learn to pick a, a good bowl, the right bowl, um, which helps enormously. Um, something that flatters flatters the the soup. But most of my soups, if you look at the recipes, they've got quite a lot of things in. There's not many that's just um, a puree of greens in a bowl. There's always lots of things in them, and that's a great help when you're photographing. Because it means that it's not it's not just a brown thing in a brown bowl. You've actually got lots of little vegetables and fruit and bits of fish and things in it, um, which you can you know you can work with. And do you change? I mean, is the when when you shoot it for the photography, is it it's a sort of final test of a recipe, and then you might tweak it again as you're cooking it. Particularly for this book, um, most of the recipes. Uh, and I did put a few rest, new recipes in because I had to. I really wanted to. Um, I, I, I could not, really. Um, most of the recipes I, I, I knew by heart. I knew exactly you know, what they would, how they were going to be. But we tested everything over over again. Um, it was, you know, you can make something, you find a recipe that you haven't made for years, and you think, you know what? I want to change something about this. So there was quite a bit of tweaking went on. Um, I'd think, why have I put mustard and horseradish in this? It only needs one or the other, you know. So you end up editing certain ingredients out. There's also um, taste change. You know, I find that I can cope with a little bit more chilli than I used to a few years ago. So perhaps things are a little bit spicier, a little bit hotter maybe. Mm. I don't want as much dairy. I don't want things to be as bland and creamy. So I've cut down on that. So as you test the recipes, um, yes, they do They do change a little bit. Uh, and when you come to photograph them, you have, to, you, know, you have to be aware that you have changed something slightly. But it wasn't a difficult, it wasn't a difficult task in photography at all. I loved doing it. And uh, have, but have any of the photographs, do you ever, you, do you ever get... You know, think actually that hasn't worked, and you're yes. you're going to edit edit that out. Absolutely, um, you can make something, put it on a plate, and it works like a dream. And sometimes you do it, and you think about it either at that moment or more often with me the next day. I think you know, I could have made that look a little bit better. So I will say to Jonathan, who's photographed my food for years, can we have another go at that? And we redo it. It doesn't happen very often, but it, it does. And sometimes new recipes that you have in your head and that they worked in the first development and testing simply don't work at the end of the day. You think this isn't right and they have to be scrapped. But it's not that often. But it does happen, yeah. 
And uh, I wanted to move on to um, there's there's a lovely photo of your journals of recipes because you're always keeping notes. Um, <laughs> and, nice and yes. Um, and I think you once said to me because you you obviously trained as a chef and but you said that um, that it was possible. You thought that you know you can you can learn to cook and become a good cook. Uh, by noticing all the time whether something's successful or working out why the same dish was better last week than this week. Mm. Should, would you advise readers and people like me to, to make their own notes? When I'm in a second-hand bookshop and I'm looking through the cookery section and I find a book that has got somebody's handwritten notes on the side of the recipe. It fills me with delight. The idea that somebody feels so comfortable with a cookbook that they can write their own notes in the margin. There used to be pages in the back of cookbooks, actually, for notes, which seems to have, have, have gone. But I love the idea that somebody moves a recipe on, they tweak it and, and play with it to suit themselves, and they make a little, a little note. When I look through my old books, they are covered in post-it notes and bookmarks and scribbles in in um, in the margin and I hope that that my books are the same I know that somebody once said to me that they buy an, a, another cookery writer's books because they're all the same size and they look neat on her kitchen shelf and I said I don't write books to look neat on a kitchen shelf I write a book to be used. I want my cookbooks to be covered in little bits of treacle and chocolate and olive oil. I want them to have smears and smudges and to have post-it notes and scribbles. I love it when a book has been used and obviously cherished. And if they cross a recipe through because they didn't like it, that's fine too. So my own books are absolutely I mean, they're all covered in, in, in all sorts of scribbles. They're also very different. I mean, as you know, my I've never written books to a format. Each book is treated as if it's got its own character. So a larger format will, will work for this book. Um, this book is going to work for people reading it in bed, so it's slightly smaller. Um, Eat and Green Feast were very small, so that you can almost treat them as a shopping list. You can stick them in your in your handbag. Every book is different. They have, I feel, it has its own personality. And so when I, as I said, when I find an old book that somebody put their notes in, um, it, it's, it, it's a joyous thing. Yes, it's been used and loved, but somebody has also... Um, scribbled their notes into it as well. They've put their signature and their fingerprint on your yeah. recipe. And if they didn't have any spinach that night and they used kale and it worked for them, then and they make a note about it, then that's a really good thing to do and come back to that recipe six months later. And Absolutely. I remember finding a cookbook by a very well-known cookery writer uh, in a second-hand shop and the recipe with... Uh, there was a recipe that said moist fruit cake, and there's a little note saying no, it's not. <laughs> and I thought, yes, I'm happy people do that to my recipes. <laughs> um, 
And in in this book, uh, with the writing, I think it it sort of seems to get to the essence of each thing. So it's what really matters in a bread sauce um, or the generosity of an an ingredient in a jam tart because you once told me I'd been mean on some jam in a jam tart. (laughs) I've never forgotten it. I like jam. (laughs) And, uh, And so you talk about the ratio of filling to pie. Um, but do you feel wiser about cooking now from from when you wrote Real Fast Food that you, you, you've you just had years of thinking and considering? Hmm, I don't know about wiser. I know a few things now probably um, that I didn't know a few years ago. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I mean, you you learn every time you cook, and I'll probably be learning till the you know the day I, day I drop. I mean, uh, and particularly with cooking, uh, you constantly constantly learning. When I write a recipe down, I don't want it to be just a formula. You know, do this, do that, do the other. I want to add little details, and. I, I, I don't just want to write cook for 25 minutes. I want to say what happens at 25 minutes. Is it golden brown? Is it pale biscuit coloured? Is it firm to the touch? Is it springy? Whatever. I want to give more details. Because although many of people using the book may well have been cooking for years, many haven't. You know, there, I mean, the, the Giles, who's been who's been testing my uh, my recipes for this book, um, he's a he's a good cook, but he's not a trained cook, and that's been great for me because he's asked so many questions and said, "Well, what do you mean by this?" And I don't understand this, and it's been great because I've been able to put in a little clue, a little trick, uh, a little bit of information that makes that recipe clearer, that illuminates a, a point in 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 the recipe that that's important. So I don't I don't know whether I'm whether I'm wiser because right? I still manage to put things in the oven and then completely forget them <laughs> which I've always done. Um I'm still I still boil the chickpeas dry every time, you know. Um so That's so reassuring though. Oh, I can assure you there's a few there's a few disasters. Um so one of my favorite sections in the book and I have lots but uh there's a chapter called the rituals of tea and it's got a, a curated biscuit section uh from parmesan biscuits to all sorts of deliciously nutty biscuits um a homemade biscuits um because they're more fail safe to make perhaps than cakes um are they underrated to underpin the start to a meal or the end of a meal with ice cream should should we should people make biscuits more than perhaps they do uh or does Abbey Crunch always have a place in your heart? <laughs> oh, I love Abbey Crunch. It's funny that that most people under 50 have never even heard of Abbey Crunch, but it was one of the great biscuits, and it's vanished. And no one will tell me that, you know, a hobnob is a replacement for it, because it isn't. It was a very special biscuit, and I will bang on about it forever. But the reason... I believe we buy biscuits um, is not because they taste great, because if you think about it, they're mostly, you know, it's not usually butter. It'll be some other fat. It'll be white flour and white sugar. Um, there's nothing there, really. I believe we buy biscuits and eat them for this wonderful nostalgia that comes with them. 
So, you know, if you buy a bourbon or a fig roll or a chocolate digestive, part of the joy of them is the fact that it takes you back to another time. So making biscuits isn't a replacement. I think it's a very special thing to do. They are generally quite easy. They're easier than cakes. Um, At least now I've mastered them. When I first started making biscuits, they kind of spread and sort of fill the tray or whatever. And Florentine. Florentines are a nightmare. I know. There are recipe that you did for one once, and they just... They do. They are are tricky. But um, there's something lovely about baking a biscuit, Mm. Um, taking them out of the oven, because they will always only ever be a treat. You don't bake a biscuit to fill you up. It's not a meal. It will always be special. And it will always kind of be a gift that you're giving to somebody. And also, you'd never make bake biscuits for yourself, or I don't think most people would. So it's something you're doing for someone else. So there's all that to stir into the recipe as well. Um, but they're very simple things. They're actually usually quite cheap to make. I mean, many of them have got nuts in which is, but they are quite cheap things to make. And getting a tray of biscuits out of the oven and that smell that fills the house of baking, um, it's so special. And I, 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 I make biscuits all the time. Um, they're easy, they're cheap, and they're huge fun. Yeah, and you can keep them in the fridge for a bit, uh, the dough. You can keep the dough in the... In fact, some people keep the dough in the freezer and will take out a block of dough and, and cut slices off and bake it. I'm not, I'm not that organised. Um, and also, I think when they're baked, they keep in a in a tin or a, or a kilner jar. Uh, I, there's something there's something rather rather sad about a biscuit tin or a cake tin that doesn't have anything in it. <laughs> there's something, yeah, there's something very 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 sad, or a few crumbs that you just sort of get up with your with your wet finger, you know. Um, I make biscuits for mornings, so. There is a time um, in between uh, breakfast and dinner when I stop and I leave my desk or I leave the kitchen wherever I'm working and I go and have a cup of tea. And it's a proper cup of tea with a teapot and a tray and I go into another room, a room where I'm not working, and I'll open a book and I'll read a bit of my book, I'll have tea and a biscuit. And it becomes a very special part of my day. It's only 20 minutes but it's a really important kind of pick-me-up. I get refocused and re-energised, and I do it pretty much every day. Well, that sounds very good indeed. And so I wanted to ask you some sort of favourite-type questions. Um, Mm. And one, actually, I was thinking about on the way here, which was about your uh, favourite covers, actually, and it was because I met someone today who was uh, reminding me that uh, when we put the cover on uh, uh, the Kitchen Diaries and it was a picture of apples with the black uh, binding down the side and at the time it was, uh, she was saying it was such a, you know, a different thing to do to to actually put some apples on the cover. It wouldn't seem so now. So your books have had lots of very different covers from sort of having some slightly burnt food if I remember on real fast (laughs) food because you didn't want it to look perfect Um, and obviously we've we've used a piece of art on you know the cover of a cook's book 
what could you say to me which your favourite is or you think again we're just always moving it on well as you know um, to your cost um, I'm allowed far too much input on on my books I just I just see um, so many cookbooks that look the same the author is on the front smiling with some food in front of them as the title of the book and I've always wanted to do something different and every book, pretty much every book, has had something on the cover which at the time has seemed extraordinary. So Kitchen Diaries 1, which had the apples, Kitchen Diaries 2, which had a page from my kitchen note, one of my kitchen notebooks with my handwriting, um, those wonderful um, brushstrokes that were on, on Greenfeast. I love working out what is going to be on, on a cover and doing something that sometimes is considered a little bit controversial in the publishing business. So putting a piece of art um, on the cover of a cookbook, for instance, I know that that will have raised a few eyebrows and people say, oh, gosh, that's not going to work. Where's the food? Where's the author? But not only has it always worked, you know, within months we find ourselves, you know, being being inspirational, shall we say, to other people. Um so, yeah, I, I will always want to do something that takes it on from being just a cookbook, an author, and some food. Oh, that's Difficult to say which is a favourite. I do love the, the cover of a cook's book. Yeah. Um, partly because, you know, my favourite uh, paintings in the world are painted by Howard Hodgkin. And the, the sheer kindness of, of, of the Howard Hodgkin estate saying that we could use one of his paintings on the cover... I mean, I was just knocked sideways when they said, yes, you, you can. But you'd had it in mind for a while, hadn't you? Oh, yes. I'd, I, I think I might have suggested it before. Yeah. Uh, and we felt it wasn't right for that specific book, but it, it, it worked for this one. Um, it's, yeah, and it is, strangely, it is quite, quite foody. The colours. The, the pink and yellow, absolutely. It's, mm. I don't know whether it's rhubarb and custard or whether it's Battenberg cake I don't know what it is but the pink and yellow does have a foodie feel to it um, So some other other quick fire questions mm-hmm. uh, everyone always asks the weird one of what would you have for your last supper so uh, probably I, I'd prefer to say ultimate supper. Yes my last supper would probably be something through a straw uh, it's probably intravenous um, like most people I it, it, it depends um, I'd be happy if it was chips, and but you'd have to put something nice with it, like some hollandaise sauce or some bernie sauce or some gravy or something to dip the chips in. Mm. Be very happy with that. Um, also, you know, I wouldn't if it was sushi. That would be okay too. Um, yeah, that's that would be my last meal. That, either of those. No, oh, okay. And uh, best country for breakfast? Oh, Japan, definitely. All those lovely little things in bowls. Um, yes, uh, there's a freshness, there's a vitality to their breakfast. There's always a beautiful um, citrus fruit. There'll also be a wonderful, perhaps a piece of melon or a piece of poached pumpkin or a little bit of very soft tofu um, and miso soup, of course, always miso soup. That, to me, is the best, the best breakfast. Offer me a bacon sandwich? I wouldn't say no. And the best, what about some uh, sort of uh, beverages? Uh, what, the best tea to drink? Well, my first cup of tea 
that I was given when I was about seven years old had milk and sugar in it, and I never drank another one for 40 years because I hated it so much. And it wasn't until somebody gave me a cup of green tea, Japanese green tea, actually, that I realized that is the tea I want to drink for the rest of my life, and why haven't I been drinking it for the last 40 years? So, yeah, it will always be a, a absolutely pure green tea. Okay. Best drink? Best drink with gin. Sure. <laughs> Best coffee? Well, I'm one of those... I'm those people who I'm very lazy about coffee. I, I I have a machine that you just pour the beans in the top and press a button, and it grinds the beans and makes espresso for you. Um, and I'm sure I should get more complicated about it, but it it's just the easiest thing in the world. Um, very small espressos. That is the way I like my coffee, and I know that. Um, I know there are more interesting ways to make coffee. And I do make pour through. I do let it drip through. I've got a lovely coffee pot and a, and a copper filter where it just drips through very slowly. But most of my coffee is drunk first thing in the morning as a little heart starter. So it has to be espresso. Okay. And um, do you still dislike eggs? Oh, I hate eggs. I don't think there is a check you could write that is large enough for me to eat a fried egg or a boiled egg. Never. Never. Okay. And what about, the, there are some lovely bits of memoir scattered through of the book about uh, early early eating or whether it's, you know, having your first baguette in Paris mm. or whatever. But first food memory? First? Flapjacks. Coming home from school and opening the front door and I could smell flapjacks. And my mum had made a little tiny tray of, we used to call it goo, actually, rather than flapjacks, but um, it's oats and syrup and butter. And she cooked it, and it was still quite crisp on, on top, but very soft and, and treacly inside. That's the first memory, and I think probably the best memory. Oh. Well, I think we've run out of time. Um, and so I can't thank you enough for sparing the time to chat, Nigel. And uh, I hope this will have given an interesting insight into uh, much of the uh, elements that went into this book. Thank you for being there for, for 30 years and for encouraging me to, at the time, reluctantly put pen to paper. OK. You weren't supposed to mention how long it was. <laughs> <laughs>